Let me uh, invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. Today we will be looking at chapter 20 as we consider and continue a series of messages on David, a man after God's own heart. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart, but that wasn't the reason God chose David to be a king. David became a man's Uh, a man after God's own heart because God had chosen him and that's what we see in his life he is a remarkable character in the Bible Um, and so we've enjoyed our time up to this point looking at him he's uh, in in these chapters uh, under pressure uh, to say the least running for his life living in the shadow of Saul attempting to do away with him to kill him. Saul has a vendetta. Saul has targeted David. He wants him dead. But in these verses, we're encouraged today, and it's, it's pretty lengthy reading, 42 verses. But now, please give attention to God's word and uh, follow as I read. When David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks... Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field Till the third, excuse me, uh, yeah, till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there's a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, good, it will be well with your servant. But if he's angry, then you know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow on the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, The Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. 
If I'm still alive, show me that steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him that he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside that stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it's safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times. On the seat by the wall, Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul didn't say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. Anytime you're around Saul and there's a spear around, you better be ready to jump. That's just editorial comment that's not in the Bible. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, It is is not the arrow beyond you. And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. 
So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you will open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word. And that by your spirit you will speak to us truth. Truth that will penetrate any defenses we may have. We pray that you would give us a tender, pliable, soft, new covenant heart. To uh, drink deeply and eat fully and be satisfied. Your word will be to us life and fruitfulness. And we pray this for the honor of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. How do you spell security? No, it's not S-E-C-U-R-I-T-Y. In this passage, security is spelled C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T, covenant. Now, lest you think I'm a Presbyterian and a covenant theologian, and I see it under every rock, it's very clear in this chapter that what what the undertone or the subtext of the entire chapter is the covenant. The covenant between Jonathan and David is pretty much fleshed out in greater detail and expanded and extended in this very chapter. And we'll learn a lot as we go through it together about that. But that is what this chapter is about. It's about covenant and it's about the security that covenant gives. Though the chapter depicts David and Jonathan as, you know, obviously deep friends, it does not mean to dredge up any kind of sentimentality over friendship. The friendship has been formalized into a covenant. We saw that in chapter 18 and verses 1 through 5. And that covenant is reaffirmed and extended is the focus of this chapter. The word itself only occurs in verse 8. But the provisions and oaths of verses 12 through 17, the allusion to Yahweh as a covenant guardian in verse 23, Saul's knowledge of Jonathan's commitment to David found in verses 30 to 31, and Jonathan's parting words in verse 42 should banish any doubt that the concept of covenant carries the thematic freight of this chapter. And so we have a rather lengthy chapter here, a lot of information. But again, uh, we know that uh, Saul has got to be exhausted from all the prophesying he did most recently. So in chapter 20, we have a, a lengthy narrative. And I want to sort of break it down to you uh, to sort of make it bite-sized for us in the time that we have. In verses, uh, there are four scenes in this chapter. It contains four scenes. Verses 1 through 11a is before Jonathan. In verses 11b to 23, it's in the field. 
in verses 24 to 34, it's at the table. And in verses 35 to 42, it's in the field again. Now, I want to uh, sketch the teaching we have this morning in the form of several propositions regarding the covenant theme. Now, I have given you room to fill out the rest of what I'm going to say under each point. Uh, First of all, the covenant provides recourse in a time of uncertainty. The covenant provides recourse in uncertainty. The day and night of Saul's prophetic marathon gave David time to sort of escape and relocate somewhere. And he arrives apparently in Gibeah at Jonathan's house. David knows what Saul is trying to do. Your father, he tells Jonathan, keeps seeking my life. But why is he doing so? Is there something I've done, David, wrong? Is there some guilt I'm unaware of? What's at the bottom of this? I am a little bit overwhelmed at Jonathan's naivete here. I mean, how could he not know (laughs) that David? But apparently all this stuff that Saul's been doing behind the scenes, he has never allowed Jonathan to be a party to or to be aware of. And so if David could discover what, what, what he's saying, if David could discover the problem, he could address it. If nothing else, knowing what had so infuriated Saul would help David understand such irrational behavior. Have you ever had a conflict with another person and you just can't figure out what's at the bottom of it? Have they lost their mind? Uh, the, The way they're behaving and acting is not even rational. And so as a result of that, David is, he's struggling here. And Jonathan is pretty unconvinced that Saul has any uh, attempts toward David's life or that David is in any kind of danger. He is, after all, his father's confidant. He's the crown prince. He's next in line for the throne. And Saul had never disclosed to him any kind of scheme for the elimination of David. David knows it doesn't take a master's degree to figure out what, uh, what would ex- expect Saul to keep Jonathan posted being pro-David as he was. Saul lost the spirit of Yahweh, but he didn't lose his political sense. David knows the score, the true score. And on earth, he asserts that there is only a step between me and death. And Jonathan consents to assist David, however. Uh, He can, and he proposes, uh, and David proposes to Jonathan a test situation that may reveal Saul's Uh, irrational mind, especially in reference to the David-Jonathan association. So David's place among the brass will be empty at the new moon feast for the monthly dinner. And at this point, David both appeals to Jonathan and explains why he has now turned to him. He says to him, and you shall act with kessid, that is he's speaking to Jonathan, towards your servant. For into a covenant Yahweh of Yahweh, you have brought your servant with you, but if there be any guilt in me, you put me to death. Now, why would David dare turn to Saul's son when under Saul's attack? Only because Jonathan had concluded a covenant of Yahweh with David, that is a covenant in which Yahweh was the witness and guardian of its promises. 
He refers to the covenant of chapter 8, verses uh, 3 through 4. And the covenant involves firm promises and solemn commitments. So as a result, that is why in his uncertainty and in his pillar to post flight, David turned to Jonathan. There was a covenant, a bastion of certainty, a safe haven in both a dangerous and helter-skelter time in David's life. And so David turns to the reality of this covenant for some kind of hope and some kinds of comfort. David then expects Jonathan to act with what the, the Hebrew word here is called kesed. You've heard it before. Kesed emet is usually loyal, steadfast love and truth, fidelity. David then expects Jonathan to act with kesed toward him because of their covenant. Even though David is the lesser and the needy party in this covenant, three times David refers to himself as Jonathan's servant. Covenant and kesed are corollaries. Better covenant and kesed may be corollaries are so in this passage. English version, uh, versions vary in the translating of the Hebrew word kesed. In this text, uh, the Revised Standard Version and the New American Standard Bible render deal kindly, while the New Jerusalem Bible uh, uses show faithful love. The term occurs, it's important, nearly 250 times in the Old Testament. Traditionally and frequently, it is mercy. In the King James, it is steadfast love. In the Revised Standard Version, loving kindness. In the New American Standard Bible, and sometimes simply love. In the NIV, New International Version, it carries the idea of love, compassion, affection, but often with the additional a connotation of loyalty, reliability, faithfulness, steadfast love. It often has that flavor. It's not merely love, but it is loyal love. Not merely kindness, but indispensable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that is devotion and totally committed. In our passage then, David appeals to Jonathan to treat him with kesed with devo devoted, steadfast love. Um, it is crucial, however, to remember that Jonathan's covenant itself was an expression of love initiated by love. The order is love gives itself in covenant and gladly promises devoted love in that covenant. The covenant partner then rests in the security of the promise and may appeal to it as David does here. So the covenant was a very formal thing, but it's a very practical thing. David is uh, he's stressed out. I mean, think of it. The most powerful man in his world is out to kill him. And he's looking to make sense of this. And because of that, he remembers this covenant that was made with Jonathan, that Jonathan initiated the crown prince, the one who has the greatest access to Saul, who isn't aware that Saul is out to do him in. And he comes to him and he remembers before him the stipulations and promises of the covenant. And in that, he takes, as we will see, a great amount of, of comfort. 
The text is not merely describing here uh, a relation of David and Jonathan. Rather, the text is extending its comfort to any Israelite who will receive it. Its message is, in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. In David's disintegrating world, there was yet one space of a safe place, one space of sanity, one refuge still intact, and that was Jonathan for him. There was covenant there. David could expect to be treated with kessid. There was kindness in a very raw and unjust world. We should not be surprised when we catch believers in the Bible in the act of doing exactly what David did, 1 Samuel 20. Running to that one dependable refuge that remains to the one, ultimately, who has bound himself to them by covenant from whom they can expect Kessid-like treatment. We ourselves, because we are in covenant with Yahweh, we are now under the new covenant with him. But in that relationship that we have with him, we have the grounds to go before him and press before him our greatest heart's desire to, for him to be our comfort, our fortress, our refuge. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Though the mountains give way and are, are cast into the sea, and though the upheaval of an earthquake occurs later on in that psalm, he says, be still and know that I am God. So the wonderful truth is, what we see David doing to Jonathan is exactly what we do to Jesus. Jesus is our refuge. He is the one who is committed to us, devoted to us. He is our God. We are his people. And the covenant privileges of living together with him is he has bound himself to us. He, you know, put another way, we can't out Jesus' love or acceptance. We can't undo it. It is permanent. It is bound to uh, uh, us, those of us who are uh, in him, in union with him by faith, who are Christians. Yahweh, who is rich in covenant fidelity, says you will never perish when you fall into the abyss of God's loving kindness. Ultimately, that is our only recourse. And of course, the one who is rich in kessid and fidelity has come next to his beleaguered people. For if we translate the Hebrew of Exodus 34, 6 into Greek, then into traditional English, we are facing him who is full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. He, Moses uh, brought the law, but Jesus is full of grace and truth. Did you know that that's covenantal language? That is exactly the same thing that's happening here. He is the one filled with, for us, grace and truth. He is our only recourse in the uncertainty of life. And you have to admit, admit living in this country, uh, the last, I don't know, long as I've been alive, is a scary place. And there, there are often times where he can be our only recourse in uncertainty. The second thing I want to say about the covenant is the covenant proves a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. 
You look at verses 12 through 17, they don't even have to really be in the text. In fact, one can go immediately from the end of verse 11 to the beginning of verse 18 and lose no flow of the story. But verses 12 through 17 were included by whoever wrote 1 Samuel for a distinct purpose. Uh, it doesn't interrupt or dis uh, uh, delay the flow of the story but it must have special importance and in verses 12 through 17 are significant in that they are also very difficult but first in verses 12 to 13 Jonathan goes on oath to formalize his commitment to warn David that he should uh, that he finds that Saul intends to destroy David in his own words Yahweh, God of Israel, when I search out my father about tomorrow, this time, or the third day, and should it be good news for David, then I will send you uh, to you and make you aware of it. May Yahweh deal harshly, all the more so with Jonathan, Jonathan, if it is my father's intention to bring disaster on you. I shall make you aware of it, send you away, and you shall go in peace. And may Yahweh be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan is formally committing himself always to act as he did in verse chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. But, why, uh, but that is why this covenant is so unusual. One simply never did what Jonathan is doing in this chapter. You didn't hand over your place to your rival ever. You didn't promise to protect him, especially when your place was that of crown prince. If Jonathan was normal, he would dispose of David. In fact, this is what angers Saul so much. Jonathan's covenant commitment to David flies smack in the face of all political common sense. Jonathan really did seek first, in this case, another kingdom. It didn't make sense and one of the strange things covenant accomplishes. Even more unusual is the commitment Jonathan urges upon David in verses 14 through 16. Time will come when Jonathan, not David, will be the, in the fugitive role. He will be the needy one. Though this text is difficult, the overall sense is clear. And will you not, Jonathan speaking, if I'm still alive, will you not treat me with this devoted love of Yahweh that I may not die? And you must not cut off your devoted love from my house forever, even when Yahweh cuts off each of David's enemies from the face of the ground. So Jonathan cut a covenant with the house of David. David gave oath to these provisions in verse 17. When he came to power, he would preserve both Jonathan's life and that of his descendants. You'll remember in 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you've read your Bible, that David is sitting in, in the palace wondering who he could show kindness to from Jonathan's seed. And he finds out about this little man living in Lodabar, which, by the way, in Hebrew means nowhere. He's a, he's a cripple, and... Uh, his name is Mephibosheth, and I haven't ever met anyone in my life named Mephibosheth. I don't think anybody names their children that anymore, but I'm not certain I remember what the name is, but David shows kindness to one of the sons of Jonathan based upon this oath here in this chapter. But 
According to the wisdom of the world and the age, a promise like this would be regarded as the height or depth of folly. When a new regime or dynasty comes into power, the name of the game was Purge, P-U-R-G-E. You didn't need to go wandering into the ancient Near East to confirm this. You can stay within the pages of biblical history. Uh, Basha of Zimri did it. Jehu did it. To find out what happens to the remnants of a previous regime, the new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy. Solidification by liquidation was what it was called. Everybody knew it. Everybody believed it. Everybody practiced it. Almost. But David wouldn't. He would preserve the crown prince's family because he gave his promise by covenant And that promise conquered culture. Both Jonathan and David made commitments to each other that trample on customary human standards. Covenant became the vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. I know. God's people today, though you and I, are not living on the edge of a dynastic tradition directly involving them. But that doesn't matter you still see the uncommon fidelity in the Christian life of God's people, perhaps in even a less dramatic form. I have seen it in my own family growing up as a child as with my older brother who was pretty much in the hospital from age 11 to age 40. Uh, He started out with a very rare uh, blood tumor disease called the von Hippel-Lidow syndrome. It started in his eyes. He had over 32 laser beam treatments on his eyes. He lost one eye at 12, then later on lost the other. He got mugged downtown in Tennessee in Memphis, got hit in the head with a pipe, went totally blind. My parents took care of my brother, and when I watched that, I knew I saw something very uncommon. They expressed to him nothing but kindness, and he was difficult. He he was not a believer at the time, and he was very embittered toward Jesus. If called upon to say grace at the table, he would never say in Jesus' name. He did it to poke in my parents' eyes, but I saw my mother and my father totally devote themselves to the care of this child. They asked me and my brother one time, did we feel left out? And Of course, you know, being boys, we said, no, we just got more time to play. But, but they, they were so focused on him, and it was a beautiful thing to watch. And many of you have seen the same thing, perhaps a wife taking care of a husband or a husband taking care of a wife because there's something called a covenant, and you promise to love them, particularly in marriage, in sickness and health, Okay. So there's a perseverance there. And we see the reality of covenant. She had uh, sometimes, we see that it's not sensational, it's not glamorous, but it's covenantal. By the way, my brother did become a believer before he died. And all of a sudden, uh, the tension between he and I disappeared, and he used to listen to my cassette tapes all the time and laugh and enjoy The covenant may demand costly commitment. This is the third. Yeah, the covenant demands costly commitment. 
Now we ra- readers sort of gather at a distance to watch the table scene, and it's a it's a monthly occasion. It, it went on every month, and Saul is there in his seat by the wall. Abner is there, Jonathan is there, but David's place is empty. Now that's different because, but Saul is silent. He surmises, well, maybe David's ritually unclean and he can't be in the presence of the king, so he needs to go through the ritual to cleanse himself. And therefore he's unfit to partake, but tomorrow he'll be here. Clearly Saul expected him Uh, to show up the next day. However, when David was absent the second day, that's when the fireworks began. The whole section, verses 24 to 34, begins with David's place empty and ends with Jonathan's place empty. After the setting has been given and Saul's silence at David's initial absence explained, the conversation begins. It develops in a sort of structural counterpoint. Saul asks questions. Jonathan's reveals information. Saul becomes angry. Jonathan begins to question Saul. Saul uh, reveals his heart. Jonathan becomes very angry. And so Saul asks the whereabouts, but notice he doesn't call David David. He calls him the son of Jesse. Why? Because if you'll remember when he took David after the Goliath episode to come and live with him in the palace, he referred to David as who? His son. Now he calls him the son of Jesse, meaning what? Not good, okay? Not good. That is a horrible way of speaking about him. But notice when he went off and he says to his own son, Jonathan, who was loyal to David, you are the son of a perverse and rebellious woman, and I mean, he lets it fly. And I don't know whether I should tell you what the Hebrew says, because it doesn't say his mother's nakedness says something else it's really really bad and I'll leave it there because uh, their children present I won't say what he said but uh, believe you me the Bible's realistic uh, especially in the Hebrew you see all kinds of stuff and you go why didn't they translate it that way and then you realize they got to sell Bibles and somebody in the south would probably get upset about it but I, I don't know uh, maybe other places too but it's horrible The rulers of this age neither understand the wisdom or the power of God, and Saul is no exception. Jonathan's stupidity made Saul beside himself with rage. Jonathan put Yahweh's servant David, Yahweh's word, the rejection of Saul's line and promise of the kingship to David, and Yahweh's kingdom first, even though he was officially and normally the one in line for the throne himself. One could say Jonathan emptied himself here. He was willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. And I might continue with Matthew 6, 33. It was not a cliche for Jonathan. Seek first the kingdom of God. Which is precisely why Saul couldn't fathom why Jonathan uh, thought that he was so dim-witted and dense Why, with blue veins bulging in his neck and red flush rising in his face, he shouted at Jonathan only four words that mattered. You and your kingdom. But you and your kingdom never moved Jonathan. It was bound and committed to covenant to David. He would remain faithful to the covenant even though it cost him the goodwill of his own father. 
Jonathan would have understood Jesus' words in Luke 14, 26, where he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. Christianity does come down to that kind of choice. Whose kingdom are you going to live for? Whose will are you going to serve? When push comes to shove, where are you going to plant your feet? If Jonathan is a scribe, disciple about the kingdom of heaven, what does he teach us? This, true life does not consist in you and your kingdom, or in me and my kingdom, but in reflecting Yahweh's faithfulness in covenant relationships. There's something liberating about that. Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom of Yahweh, and therefore David's, so his life did not need to be centered in his ambition, what can I get, but rather in God's providence, what Yahweh has given him. Jonathan had acknowledged that the kingdom was Yahweh's, and therefore David's, so life did not need to be centered in his ambition, what can I get, but in God's providence, what Yahweh has given, even as a believer and not as a crown prince. My reigning passion is not to make my way, my living, my mark, not to gain my place, not to get ahead. That may be costly, but it's certainly liberating. Life does not consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. Let me say that again. And this flows in the face of every uh, life coach I've ever heard. Flies in the face because it's God's word. Life doesn't consist in achieving your goals, but in fulfilling your promises. That sentence is only cold print, but watch it. It's dynamite. Handle it with care. In conclusion... The covenant provides peace in the midst of confusion. The little lad who was with Jonathan that morning to chase arrows may have been of more help than he knew. If Saul's henchmen had Jonathan under surveillance, they may have relaxed their vigor a little bit when they saw Jonathan did not go out alone. In any case, when Jonathan hollered, isn't that arrow beyond you? David had his answer. Otherwise, it was so typical of, as Jonathan prodded, quick, hurry up, don't stand around. Not even the lad had a clue about things. He had likely had this chore numerous times before. But David's gratitude and mutual affection and grief marked this parting scene. Jonathan has the last word. Go in peace because we too have sworn an oath in Yahweh's name saying, May Yahweh be between me and you and between my seed and your seed forever. Given the circumstances of Jonathan's words, could seem almost laughable. He's telling David, go in peace. But we know he's serious. And when he says, go in peace, while Saul stalks your life, Jonathan, however, is not claiming that all is peaceful. He is saying that David can go in peace because there is peace, covenantal peace, between the two of them. There is peace because these two have sworn an oath. Their covenant bond has established 
peace between them. It is as if Jonathan urges, go in peace, because there is peace in this one item, in this one relation of ours, in this one covenant of ours, there is safety. Biblical peace is something different than tranquility. It's not uh, gentle tranquility. But Jonathan is saying to David, there's an anchor here. There's that one relationship that holds fast when everything else may be in flux, may be in confusion. There's, there's, there's that one area where peace is established and reign. Is that not an accurate sketch of biblical peace? Biblical peace, as I said earlier, is not general tranquility, but rather a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. Paul implied the same thing. He says, Christians enjoy peace with God. Romans 5, 1, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And at the same time goes on to say that we endure afflictions. Romans 5, 3. Jesus told his disciples, in me you may have peace. In the world you have affliction. Hmm. The Christian then does not have peace because things are peaceful. He has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to himself. If you doubt that, uh, that, you've not been listening very carefully every time we take the Lord's Supper. Because Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. It is the covenant bond of the unforsaking friend that speaks peace to us in our disappointments, dangers, and even disasters. The last line of our chapter is poignant. Then he, David, rose up and went away, but Jonathan went into town. Who knows what's going to happen to either? But at least cov the covenant secured one relation among all others. Obviously, security in this text is an eight-letter word, and when it's spelled out, it looks like this covenant. That's why we are so thrilled at the concept of being in covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that covenant provides for us a God who cannot lie, a God who cannot break his promises, a God who will never forsake us, never abandon us, never leave us, never give up on us, never write us off. And he will always be with us regardless of the context and difficulties of our life. Now would you bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. It is uh, glorious, as we've heard it today, as we are reminded that you are a covenant-keeping God. We know that we ourselves have broken covenant with you in every conceivable way. Uh, our record is one of being covenant breakers, but your record is one of being a covenant keeper, uh, a pactum salutis, a pact of salvation made before creation began has determined that you will redeem for yourself a people. You will give those people to your son and he will accomplish redemption by keeping both ends of the covenant. He will keep the stipulations in order that we can be right with you and he will suffer penalty for the violations so that we can know you with intimacy and with confidence and assurance. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give from a heart 
that is comforted by our covenant-keeping God. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.